Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. All right, guys, welcome back to Pulse to the Wall, episode 55. And today we're joined by Pete Canones. And Pete, I think you were on episode five or six of this podcast back when it was still called the Mike Paul cast. So this is really your Pulse to the Wall debut. Um, huge honor for you, I'm sure. So <laughs> um, since that time, I mean, we've we've definitely got more experience. I think we we were like booking guests that we never thought we could get in the first five, six episodes. We had like Scott Horton, Gene Epstein, you, Stapleton, like all these big names. And uh, we were definitely trying to walk before we could crawl, but I think we've kind of caught up there. So um, it's great to have you back on. And before we get into the serious stuff uh, that we're going to be discussing, you were recently at Porkfest, and that's been an item on my bucket list for a few years. Can you tell us a little bit just about the event and like, you know, what the vibe is, like what's all done there? I mean, it's just laid back and wild. I mean, you have everybody from... um like left anarchists and hippie. I mean, like out and out look like hippies and things like that. And um, people like that. And everybody's just cool with each other. I mean, there's really no, you know, we didn't see any animosity. I mean, there was this thing that Nick Sarwalk showed up and started to videotape Karen Ann Harlow's talk, like some weirdo wearing sunglasses or something like that. But I, I hadn't gotten there yet. And um, I would have just got a whole bunch of people together to stand in front of him so he couldn't do it and just harass him until he left. But um, it's mostly, I mean, it's really, it's a bunch of drinking, a bunch of partying, and a bunch of people hanging out, eating really good food and being chill with one another. You know, the only people that seem to want to start problems were, you know, one person and, you know, a shock of all shocks who it would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, it, it sounds like a great time. Like you just laid out and we're going to be at freedom fest, which, uh, Dave Smith is hosting and if you, or I think like exactly a month from now. And, uh, Gene Epstein said that he's like, you know, pork fest and freedom fest are fun, but he thought pork fest was like more of a, a fun time. Like it was, it was more like what you just described. So maybe next year we'll make it out there. And then there's Childerberg. So there's all these, uh, libertarian ish yeah, yeah. events, even though maybe we can I'll get be into at all that. those. I'll be at all those next year. I mean, definitely. Go, and this time I'm going to pork fest for the full week. I mean, it was just too much fun. Uh, you just have to watch out because man, that alcohol catches up. Really <laughs> <quick. Yeah. laughs> I, I experienced that at Childerberg that, that Texas sun combined with, you know, chugging beers. It, it hits you <laughs> real quick. Yeah. Wake up in the morning, like, what happened to me? <laughs> yeah. And then you have like that kind of like vacation drunk where you're just kind of in this haze the entire time. It's not like sober, tipsy, drunk, you know, it's kind of like one thing. But, um, but yeah. And then the other thing, just a quick comment. I mean, looking at some of the pictures that people were posting from there, I didn't realize how like beautiful New Hampshire is. I mean, there's oh like God. swooping hills. The, the mountains, I mean, you're in the middle of the mountains there. I mean, it is, we took some pictures with, um, Dave and I took a picture with the mountains in the background. I got a picture with Reed Coverdale with the mountains in the background. And then when I posted them, people are just like, 
holy crap, look at that scenery. Yeah, those are mountains. Like when you're coming up 93 out of Boston, because I flew into Logan and drove okay. up three, drove up, <laughs> flew Atlanta to Boston, you know, two and a half hours, then drive three hours. Like at one point, 93, like this main highway goes through a national park and it is just mountains on both sides. And you see where the ski slopes are for, for when winter hits and everything. I mean, it is picturesque. I mean, it's, it's beautiful up there. I just, I mean, I could probably live there if I was a snowbird, like went to Florida or, you know, went south during the winter, but, um, as beautiful as it is during the summer. And I'm sure it's beautiful during the winter. It's going to be cold as a mofo. And, um, yeah, I'm just, these old bones are not, don't want that anymore. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But, uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was surprising to see. It's a well-kept secret. Maybe they want to like keep that. I think the story with Iceland and Greenland was they, called ice they called iceland iceland because they didn't want people moving there the very very xenophobic uh reason by the way people think it's funny i think it's really a, a knock it's it's bad bad stuff but um anyway i've been, I've been iceland that's nice <laughs> yeah I, I hear good things yeah. it's it's on the on the to-do list i'm kind of waiting for the the dust to settle on the stupidity with the travel restrictions right now before i do think about any international travel Good luck with that. So, yeah. 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 I was going to ask you, how, how was uh, flying into Logan? Did you have to verify you were COVID free? Because I know Massachusetts yeah. is ridiculous. Nah, there were people walking around. I mean, there were people walking around the airport without masks on. Really? You know? And yeah. So, hmm. I mean, they weren't getting yelled at or anything like that. In the Delta Sky Club, where they want you to keep your mask on when you're not eating or drinking, everybody had their mask off and was just laying back. I mean, except the obvious people that voted for Biden 10 times, you know, <laughs> you, could, you could spot across the room. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. But um, so getting into the, the topic of what we were bringing you on to talk today about is this recent wedge. And I know you have an episode coming up on your podcast. You mentioned before the show that you're going to cover in depth this week specifically. I wanted to talk about <clears throat> more about the ideas here. So this is something that if you would have, like, I would say a year ago, I had this kind of like shifting in my gut feeling that I hadn't felt since uh, Ron Paul pulled me out of my trance, you know, eight years ago. And I noticed that same feeling start to creep up. I think I first listened to Curtis Yarvin on Thaddeus Russell's podcast. And then again, on your podcast, and it started articulating these kind of suspicions that I felt on, like, like I said, a gut level. And, uh, and then really about three, two, three months ago, I started feeling the same way. And like, particularly regarding the Mises caucus, where I started to look at sort of the futility of the end game. And this has been something that you've been talking about people like uh, Vin Armani or uh, Cyprinus. I can't remember. Sorry. It's too, too soon. Cyprian. That's right. And, uh, and Matt, and those guys have been talking about, and uh, it's, it's really starting to sort of manifest in my mind where I'm trying to be objective here. I was very pro Mises caucus as recently as a couple of months ago, but now I'm seeing it as not just, oh, if it fails, it fails, but that this is something that could be potentially very counterproductive. So if you could, and when you listen to the podcasts that have covered this recently, it's a lot of talking to distill some sort of abstract ideas. So if you had to tell somebody like an elevator pitch, why this is a bad idea, how would you present that? What, why I think, I yeah. mean, I've, I struggle with, struggle with it because I mean, I, I have so many friends in the Mises caucus and 
I know that they're not doing anything for um, to be harmful. I, I just, I, I guess I've gotten to the point where I look around and see, like I just posted on Twitter. It's a license plate from Iowa and it says, vax me up. <laughs> so it's a vanity plate. And I look at things like that. I look at the last 16 months and I, I question whether the whole idea of putting out a bugle call for liberty on the biggest, you know, I mean, and especially under the libertarian banner, um, when you look at like um, Joe Jorgensen's appearance on Dave Rubin last year, and you know she went on there, and I mean she made sense. It was just typical libertarianism crap. Um, I mean just your straight pablum basics, and you know the whole comment section is talking about her tweet about you know being actively anti-racist, and I mean I just don't know that doing anything under the name libertarian anymore is going to bring in a lot of people because I think that it's gotten to the point where most people know, even if they don't know what libertarianism is, they have an idea in their mind what libertarianism is. And once they have that idea in their mind, getting them to change that is hard. So I don't know that this whole restarting the Ron Paul revolution by having somebody run on a national stage which is obviously not going to be a Republican stage like Ron did, is going to restart a revolution, taking into consideration the fact that it doesn't seem like people want liberty. It seems like people want chains. So is it counterproductive? I mean, is it, it, not is it counterproductive? I, I don't even really like that language. I, the question is, is it even worth it? Is it worth the time? you'd put into it, the money you'd donate to it, the effort, is it going to work? And you know, I think that Matt more than Vin asks a really good question. Well, if it doesn't work, what do you do? If, yeah. if you, you know, if after 2024, you don't see this gigantic revolution that has restarted nationally. Okay. Well, what do you do? I mean, what are, what are the excuses for it? Is it that we didn't have the right messenger? I mean, really, it's going to get that. It has to get to the point now where you have to ask, is it the messenger or the message? And it just may be that the message, the way it's been delivered for a long time now, that there was a time in 2007 and 2012 that a lot of people flocked to it. Maybe we're past that. Maybe COVID I've changed the game. I've wondered that exact point. And, you know, the, there was also the economic crash, which was, you know, people, when they experience hardship, they look to change. And I, I think that even despite COVID people are still pretty comfortable, you know, they still have their DoorDash, they still have their Netflix, they got stimmy checks coming in. So I don't know if people are going to be as receptive to it because conditions, conditions haven't realized yet. You know, I mean, yeah, you're seeing inflation, but that's only, a little bit of talk about it. I think it hasn't Aaron, been home yet. I think Aaron from Timeline Earth said it best. He said it on a recent episode, and I was hanging out with him the past couple of days. People haven't gotten hungry. Yeah, 
And I, I is, also, I know that you and Aaron have also proposed the idea of, of the goal of the Libertarian Party should just be a vehicle of radicalization. That should be the, the ultimate goal. And I, I generally believe that. I think if you are going to play to win, I think that Tho Bishop has offered, you know, the GOP is relatively fractured right now. And if, if you want to win on the political stage, use their war chest, use their resources. You know, it, I've, I've talked with, with Nick about this. I, you know, do you, you could use the GOP and get 30 Thomas Massey types in there, or you can maybe get one LP house member and from the state of New Hampshire. I mean, which is going to make more difference. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, yeah, the radicalization is, it's a good idea, but I mean, it's just not, it's not going to happen. You know, when you run automatically, when you run for an office and you're now you are the mouthpiece for a party, a political party. I mean, really, how based are you going to get? I mean, seriously, I mean, it's not like. It's not like you know the they're going to become the Bolsheviks, you know, where they're going to start preaching fire and brimstone and you know making threats. So I mean, I don't know how it helps, and I I do. You know, I think that if the Mises Caucus, their whole goal was localization, just concentrate on doing things locally, uh, moving the needle locally, which I think is something that can be done. I, I honestly think it is something that can be done, you know, depending on locations, locales, things like that. I mean, some local um, parties and some locales are as corrupt as the national. But, you know, you can research and figure out where you can make the needle move locally. Um, but the whole idea of, you know, and getting Angela in his chair, I think that would be good because, you know, she's about localization. She's about partnering with people locally, even people you don't agree with, you know, to get one specific goal done, which is a good political idea, something that a political party should do. Um, I don't know how much the national, the idea, and it seems that everybody's hedging their bets on the Ron Paul revolution being rekindled. I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know that I look at the last 16, 17 months, and I see a lot of people who are upset. I see a lot of people who, well, and let's talk about the election a little bit, that believe the election was stolen. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Libertarian Party and, you know, some of the people at the top of the party were calling, I mean, Nick Sarwak still calls. I mean, and I know he's not part of the party anymore, but he's still a former chair and has some influence when he talks in public. He still wants January, this January 6th insurrection to be because he hates the right more than the left. Okay. So, I mean, he's just blue pilled and you know, you had a party that did not speak out against the lockdowns, did not question whether the vote in 2020 for president was you know, legitimate or not. And that's what all these people that you want to reach out to care about is the lockdowns, the vote, you know, whether the vote was was legitimate or not. And the libertarians have not said anything about it. 
and now you want to come in late and start appealing to them? I don't know. I don't know. I think that people get it in there. Once most people, you know, who are, let's face it, they're stupid. They're idiots. Okay. The, the average person is just an idiot who just wants to be safe. Doesn't want to learn anything new. You know, I mean, still listens to the same music they listened to in high school. Guilty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, who are you, who are you trying to get? I mean, the young people all want socialism or some kind of, you know, some kind of government handouts and everything. Mm -hmm. I just don't see, I don't see the strategy in going out there and doing that, especially when you ask the question, what if it fails miserably? Because if it fails miserably, I will honestly say any kind of libertarian wing of the libertarian like say say the mises caucus in 2022 in reno next year angela gets in the chair pretty much everyone's mises caucus and then you go into 2024 you run say dave runs okay for president and it, it's to put that liberty message out there to reignite the ron paul revolution and you have all these people who came together to do it 2020 they all went to reno in 2022 they're all going to go to the dc convention in 2024 to get dave out there preaching the message and the message fails how many of those people are sticking around that's yeah, a good that's, question that, that and is, what, do they, and what do they do and what do they do well what happened after 2012 People after the Ron Paul Revolution of 2012, people stood around for a while. A, a lot of a lot of the people who supported Ron Paul, they went Trump. Some went alt right, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, where are they going to go now? Where well, are they? Pete, let me let me ask you this because we've been talking about this on the podcast. I mean, for the past couple months of what the strategy should be, and it, it seems like the route of having this ideological purity in an age where we're living in an age of populism seems like just the completely wrong approach. And I, I think like Tyler mentioned, Tho Bishop's strategy of using the GOP and Eric Brakey's done the same thing. It seems like if there's any strategy, it's to kind of inject our ideas into that existing populism that's out there right now. I mean, like you said, you could talk to people about the lockdowns, about the inflation that they're going to see. I mean, that's our bread and butter as people who come from like having studied Austrian economics. These are things that are going to be very relevant. So as far as messaging, I, I like the idea that the Mises Caucus has, which is get the word out to as many people as possible, get popular support, can't be a bad thing. And But when I look at the, the Mises Caucus, like it, it's, I've been trying to distill how I feel about this. I think I admire everybody that's in the party or that's in the caucus. Like you look at Angela McArdle and Michael Heiss and all these people, and they're like very like good hearted, knowledgeable people. But I think that the, the Mises caucus by itself is not greater than the sum of its parts. You know, like these people are better off using other strategies and vehicles to get their ideas, their policies through than this one thing that seems destined to fail. Yeah, unfortunately, I think the you know, but I also, when it comes to the Mises Caucus, I separate the two strategies. One is the local strategy and one is the national strategy. Mm -hmm. I still support them on the local strategy. Um, I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, it, it's, it's the one that makes the most sense. 
I don't know about the national strategy. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work to me. Um, I want it to work. I want there to be like a, you know, see this revival, you know, 1800s Christian type revival of, of libertarianism, you know, 17, even 1776, something that would go back to the founding. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know that people, you know, you have to you know, know your audience. When it comes to sales, they tell you to know your audience. When I look at the audience, I don't know what I see there that is um, that this message is going to be, you know, and the Fed. Okay, that's great. Okay. <laughs> I mean, people don't really, I mean, most people don't even know what the Fed is. Yeah. And the war. <laughs> yeah. And the wars. Okay. Most people don't know that we're in nine countries. Now, when you tell them, they're just like, oh, I guess, you know, they have to be there. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the national strategy is. I mean, I know what the local strategy is. It makes sense to me. You know, I've talked about recently, um, I don't know whose show, who show I was on, but um, I think I think I might have been talking with Adam, Adam Patrick, and that you can easily um, like take over a town, like even like by force. You know, <laughs> you could take over my my hometown. You could take over by force. You could probably do it in a day, maybe less. And because there's a mayor, you know, a bunch of cops, like ten people on the board, you get control of them. What happens? Oh, you have the town. Okay. What are you going to do about the government? What are you going to do about the federal government? 2.4 million employees. No one knows who's in charge. I mean, you know, if you read the Machiavellians, if you read um, various political books, you know that the elites are in charge. Most people don't even know who those elites are. I probably don't know who those elites are. You know, I mean, we've probably, people running the government, really running the government, we've probably never heard their names because they're in the background. Why would they become politicians when they can wield power anonymously? I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that you're ever going to be able to get that percentage of people that it's going to take to change the culture. And that's well, really what you have to do. Is you have to change the culture, and that, mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to. And you do that locally. You do that locally. You start with your own culture locally. And, um, you know, if people want to you know, hey, get government out of schools. Well, it's like Hoppe said, you know, start locally. Yeah. And, you know, this is something I, I kind of share with you of you where I know you've talked about how you're white pilled one day, black pilled the next day. Mm -hmm. And for me, the case for the white pill is that the the kind of decentralizing route seems to be the natural course right now. We see people fleeing California, New York and going to Texas and Tennessee and Florida and I mean, is that is that why you say you're white pilled some days? The fact that people seem to be doing this just organically, getting up and moving, voting with their feet, and forming local communities. Yeah, there seems to be some federalism involved. Um, I don't necessarily think decentralization is a good thing or a bad thing. I think in very small areas, it's a good thing. Um, the fact that the national government is the way it is is because it's radically decentralized. I mean, there's no central force. There's no, you, you know, there's no king. So what happens, you know, um, 
Okay, so we're going to make this guy the Secretary of War, the Secretary of Agriculture, and, um, you know, the, sec the Secretary of Defense. What are people initially, what are people's reactions to that going to be? Well, we can't have the, the guy who's in charge of war being in charge of our food. We need somebody else. And you just grew government. Right. Because right. Now, we have, now we have to have a bunch of different departments because there has to be a specialist here, a specialist here. That's Burnham's book, The Managerial Revolution, talks about that, um, where we have to have managers for everything. And that's the way government grows. Um, so when you're talking about decentralization, you also have to define your terms because nationally decentralized means the biggest government in the history of mankind. You know, if there was a king, maybe it wouldn't be that big because he'd have, what, a couple of advisors and you know, only people that he would trust, people that he would you know trust not to put a bullet in him. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. I'm not calling. You know, and yeah, I am calling for a king. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I don't know what I don't know what would work with this culture. You look at this culture and you just have to ask, okay, what would be the best way to manage or rule over this culture and give people the most liberty? Well, people don't want liberty. They give it away. They gladly. They they gladly give it away. And I've I've had conversations with uh you know, in, in like a group chat with a few of us about, you know, advocating for liberty and like individual responsibility and like you're in control of your own destiny. Like it's hard to sell that. It's hard to sell accountability and the effort it takes to maintain it when victimhood is and, and government handouts are always around the corner. You know, people see they're like, well, you know, look at look at all the social movements going on in this country right now. They're almost all of them are based in some form of victimhood. And then, you know, they can, you can get the, the clicks on social media. You can get, you post a black square on Instagram and 500 people like it, you know, victimhood sells and that's what we're competing against. And, and you touched on a little bit earlier that, you know, libertarians want to hold themselves to this purity test. They want to say I'm principled, but you're facing an enemy that doesn't have principles. They will change their principles a week from now. How do you beat that? You, you can't sell, you know, the, the people aren't receptive to it because what you're selling requires a paradigm shift and, and it requires real effort to maintain it where you can, you know, continue going along to get along. Yeah, you might bitch about your property taxes, but you got DoorDash, you got Netflix, you got Facebook, you, you know, you don't have to maintain anything. You just have to go to work, come home, have a few beers, eat dinner and go to sleep. Yeah, I think you said it earlier right there was um, you know, when we talk about liberty and use that term, really, there's no using that term without using the term responsibility. Because if people aren't responsible, if people aren't going to take responsibility over their lives, there is no liberty. There is not going to be liberty. And not on a mass scale. Um, there are places in this country where there are people who you know, believe in personal responsibility, groups of people. I mean, it's rare. It's, you're not going to find it near a city, that's for sure, um, which is why people are returning to going more rural. And, yeah, I mean, if we're not, if, if we're not mentioning responsibility in with liberty, then that message, you're, you're only delivering half the message. And when you 
And if you do decide to deliver the whole message, which is liberty, but it's also responsibility, then the majority of people aren't going to want it because people don't want responsibility. So where yeah. do we go from? So where do we go from here? I mean, so that th- that is the question: is where do we go from here? Yeah, and that's uh, that's something talking about responsibility. I know that's in kind of the the podcast circle. That's been a theme that's been talked about a lot recently. And but at the same time, I think that that's sort of why Jordan Peterson had his meteoric rise. There seems to be some sort of hunger for that message as well. And I honestly, I like having this idea in my head now, I'm kind of embarrassed that I never thought of it before, but there is that huge link between liberty and responsibility. And I, I think a big part of the failure of spreading the message has been not incorporating those two together, not presenting them as the same thing. And I think Matt made that, I think it was Matt that made that point on the uh, Liberty lockdown episode, but he, he made that case really well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that maybe that idea has a way of getting through, but then, I mean, what's we're, we're having like a really abstract conversation, and what I'm trying to put together in my head is where rubber meets road, what does that actually look like? And uh, we don't, we just don't know yet. And that's the thing, is when you come to the realization that you can't have liberty without responsibility... And the overwhelming majority of the population and the culture doesn't want responsibility. Then you need to backtrack and go, okay, we need to rethink what we're doing here. Um, Especially when, like you guys said, when the people in charge have no principles, they will change them at the drop of a hat so that they can get their way. And then, you know, libertarians, because libertarians are the smartest people and the most consistent people in the room, aren't willing to bend or play the games that the other ones are playing because, you know, then, Hey, then I'll be a statist or I'll be, you know, whatever other social media, you know, fantasy and Kapistan warrior um, wants to call you. And, you know, if, if you're going to play politics, I mean, you can be somebody who sits at home, shit posts on social media. I do it a lot. Um, <laughs> I love it for the record. Well, I also have a strategy when I'm doing it. I'm not just doing it to get react. I'm doing it to get reactions, but I'm doing it to get reactions for a purpose. Um, And then what else is there? What's the praxis? And that's all. That's what it comes down to. Um, As insufferable as the agorists are, I mean, worse than vegans, worse than free staters. um, At least they have a plan at least they're doing something, you know? And that's why, I mean, like I said, as insufferable as they are most of the time, a lot of them, um, at least they're doing something. At least they they see a praxis and they're working with it. Um, they, they see a practical solution to it and they're going for it. And it's kind of hard to piss on them for it. But the, um, the whole idea that all we're going to do is preach yeah i mean think about the history of christianity okay so you had the you had the great commission go forth and preach christ to all the lands um and well yeah they did that but they also had work they also like fed the poor they also did things that attracted them attracted people who didn't believe to them well i mean pretty much 
it's and what's funny is in doing that you're showing by serving people you're showing people what christ did how he served in his in his uh in his life when he was alive and that goes back to matt saying that christian or i don't know who said it but libertarianism is christianity without christ and that's what it is is you're going forth and you're preaching this message but nobody sees you living that message or providing a practical solution for it. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a mess. It's a message without a, um, without anything to work with it, without anything in way to make it happen with your hands. Yeah. And you were talking, <clears throat> you touched on the political strategy where, you know, the people who win the powerful are willing to play dirty Machiavellian politics and principled libertarians aren't willing to do it. So you're left with just whatever bully pulpit you have trying to spread your message and, and pur purity with. But I mean, the analogy I like to use is, you know, people will just say right-leaning conservatives and libertarians, they view politics and political theater as like, if, if we're going to use a fighting analogy, they know that it's presented as if it's a sanctioned, like regulated MMA fight with judges and an objective referee. And then they know that their opponents play dirty. They know that they play dirty and they know that the refs and the judges are bought and paid for, but they still go in and fight with their principles when it's not a fair fight. And then afterwards they complain about it. And it's almost worse that they have this, that they, they know that the other side, the, their opponents, the cathedral are playing dirty and they engage anyway, not ready to deal with it. So they view it as a sport where if you view it as a martial art, you go in there with the, uh, the mindset of, okay, I know that they're going to play dirty. I know that it's not fair. You better have a strategy to deal with it or you don't. And bitching about it isn't going to do anything. Well, and you know, and if they are coming in there to play dirty, most of the time when someone's playing dirty, you have to play dirty back. Are you ready to do that? Because mm -hmm. it's going to go against your principles. The article that I wrote for my Substack last year, late last year, why the why the Libertarian Party will never have political power, and it was just basically the non-aggression principle. It's you're sticking to this thing about oh we're not going to sink we're not going to sink to the level that others sink to. It was like when um I caught a bunch of shit for um that tweet about well, just go back in, go in with guns to and take, take <laughs> the stuff back in, yep. in New Hampshire. I remember and that. people got all upset about it and everything. And I'm like, well, they violated the non-aggression principle. If they violated the non-aggression principle by stealing your stuff, go take it back. I mean, that's what the, like if somebody breaks a non-aggression principle, like all bets are off. Right. And that's what I've been hearing ever since I became a libertarian. So, yeah, I mean, that even made it into the evidence folder of, you know, how toxic the Mises Caucus was getting. And it's like, what's funny is there's no Mises Caucus membership. It's like, I, I guess, oh, you're Mises Caucus and everything. It's like, oh, I don't know, prove it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's no membership. I mean, you know, whatever. Um, I feel like it's a Joe Biden, like, hey, it's, your, it's an idea, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so... I never, you know, so if people are going to play dirty, you have to be ready for it. And yeah, I mean, I, what does that look like? I mean, you should be ready for everything. I mean, what, what is it? Um, you know, Sun Tzu said something about, you know, 
the only war you the only war you go into is when you know you're going to win. Mm-hmm. That means you have to know yeah. all sides. You have to you, you have to know everything. And and I know he also said something about you know anyone who goes to war is already lost or something like that. But he also said if you get, you know, only go into a war that you know you're going to win, only go into a fight you know you're going to win. Um, so you should know everything that could possibly be done. And um, I don't know that libertarians are ready for that. I don't know that they're ready to play that dirty for the most part. You know, I mean, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus gets all this crap about being Nazis, about being entryists, about this. And man, I go into that Facebook group and I'm just like, man, where'd all these normies come from? <laughs> like, We've like, talked like, about it. I'm like, dude, it's like, I mean, like, wait a minute, Nazis? These guys are not, these guys aren't half as radical as I would, you know, like, I mean, not, some of them aren't radical at all. They think this is all going to be done with politics and, you know, you're going to be getting, I mean, libertarians last year, and I'm not talking about prags. I'm talking about libertarians of all stripes. I saw Facebook groups that were explaining how Joe Jorgensen was going to win. <laughs> yeah. And people like, and and like liking and and like getting 200 likes on that post, 200 thumbs up on that post. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you? No libertarians ever going to win. They're never going to allow it. And if you think, you don't even let them on the debate stage. Yeah. Even (laughs) if you thought, even if you thought it could happen in 2020 after the election, you know that it's not going to happen because basically what, what I learned out of 2020 election politics is that the, the person who's going to win is the person that they want to win. And that's the way yeah. it's going to be going forward from now on. You'll have, they'll be Republican presidents. They'll be pro Israel, pro cops, pro drug war. They're going to be handpicked. You know, you're not going, you're going, you'll have a choice of a bunch of Republicans, but all of those choices will be made for you. Mm-hmm. So no matter which one you pick, you're getting the one they want. Yeah, you can have it at any color as long as it's black, right? The old yeah. Henry Ford quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that that is uh, like okay. So this is a question I wanted to ask you. Um, a couple books in this kind of counter libertarian idea, I'll call it. I just coined that that we've seen over the last year with uh, you know, Yarvin and um, uh, Vin Armani and and Matt and you has been like the the uh, Burnham's Machiavellians. Um, you could throw a couple other books in there that have really been influential. And then Yarvin's whole unqualified reservations. But uh, I, on the topic of strategy, this is something I've been exploring lately. And you just talked about Sun Tzu. And I also recently read um, uh, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, which is very enlightening when you actually read it. I mean, it's it's crazy. And uh, the other one is uh, Miyamoto Musashi's The Book of Five Rings, which is similar to The Art of War. They're both viewed as like these historically significant um, strategy books. So I noticed that one thing with libertarians is they get very caught in these echo chambers of reading just Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe. Um, and those are all very knowledgeable people. So you're getting a lot of outside influences through osmosis. But do you think that's something that's like sorely lacking in this community is reading like other books and other thinkers to to also supplement the ideas? I mean, there's like four or five libertarian books you could read and understand the ideology. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be, you know, Yarvin talks about how he was like 
a completionist with um, Mises and Rothbard, and he just read everything. And you don't have to do that. I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a machine. So to think that you need to do that to understand the ideology is ridiculous. I mean, four or five books. And, but then, I mean, find me a libertarian book by a libertarian author who understands political power and the history of political power like James Burnham. Just doesn't exist. There's no book out there that's going to explain how the elites take over and how they're always in charge. I mean, it sounds like conspiracy theory stuff, but it's true. I mean, you can look at it through the, you know, he starts with the Met, um, Burnham starts with the Medici's and just c- comes straight forward. And, um, you know, books like that or books, you know, any book on like, for, like right-wing philosophy or left-wing philosophy. And, you know, like um, I, I know like, a lot of libertarians have read the communist manifesto it's communist manifesto's garbage i mean the, he wrote it assuming that you're a communist so somebody who's not a communist reading it is like oh this is garbage well yeah because you don't have the frame of reference to read it go read the german ideology by marx and then read the communist manifesto and then you'll understand exactly what he was doing especially if you understand the 1800s and what was going on at that time in Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, and then you know, go re- you know, read um, like Julius Evola, some like hardcore right-wingers and stuff like that and see w- what you get out of that. And people just don't want to do it. They, because they're very, the, the thing that I've come to learn about the libertarian ideology. And the reason I can say this is because I was so guilty of it for so many years is that people just, love to climb into these books, get them in their head, create and capistan in their head. And then if they're having a conversation about anything in reality, they run it through the filter of Ancapistan. And if it isn't in Ancapistan, it's statist and they don't want to talk about it. Well, then you're just an uneducated fool because we live in reality. And the reality is that politics is important. Knowing politics is important. Um, I mean, some people can just drop out. I mean, if you move someplace that's remote or something, and you're just like, okay, I'm, I mean, maybe all this stuff isn't going to touch you. Okay, that's fine. That's not most people. So most people are ignorant. And I'm, and I'm talking about like some of the most well-read and caps and libertarians. I mean, they don't have a, a functioning understanding of, you know, like when I talk about how the the government, the United States government being so decentralized, that's the reason why it's that big. They have no clue what I'm talking about. I mean, they, they can't get it through their mind because decentralization, good, centralization, bad, and United States government centralized. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. It's not centralized. I mean, power is centralized, but power, I don't even know if power is centralized. I don't know where the power is in the government. <laughs> I mean, yeah. to me, the government, to, to me, the power, when people ask me, like, they're like, oh, so where's the political power? I'm like, your local cop. Your local cop is the political power. He is just following orders and not questioning them for a paycheck 
and a pension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you, when you mentioned that idea, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, when you were mentioning that idea, that that was actually the first time I'd heard that, that decentralized on the federal level means bigger government that, I mean, it clicked right away. I'm like, oh, I, I've never thought of it that way. But then uh, like you think of things like a few years ago, I think Rogan actually had this in one of his uh, specials where he talked about how the FBI and the CIA were like playing dirty against each other and they were like fucking each other over and trying to dig up dirt. And, uh, you know, there's the old idea that don't interrupt your enemies when they're fighting each other. Mm-hmm. But part of me is like, wait a minute, that's that's not good because now you have like several agencies and that truly is decentralized. They're not part of the mm-hmm. same central structure going at it. So that is cause for concern now that you, I mean, I like when you said that that was literally the first time I've thought about it in that way. But it makes sense. I you think saw I, the same thing I'm, in Afghanistan, too, like Scott Horton laid it out in Fool's Aaron. They had different organizations all funding different people and they're all fighting each other. And then like mm-hmm. Pakistan would get mad at us. Be like, oh, sorry, sorry. We'll go find these guys. We'll leave you guys out of it. That's not centralized because if it was centralized, that wouldn't be happening. If it was centralized, everybody would be on the same page and mm-hmm. everybody's not on the same page. That's like the whole thing about um, in the new world order. Oh, you know, the Bilderberg group and the trilateral commission and, World Economic Forum, they're all in it together. If they were all in it together, we'd like literally be living in pods now. We'd be in the matrix and they'd just be using us as batteries. But they're not because they're not all in it together. It's de- <laughs> That's decentralized. I mean, the World Economic Forum having all these things and d- disagreeing with each other. You know? um, yeah, I, I just... It's funny the centralization. Once you really start thinking about it, centralized powers would be far prefer would be preferable because the you know where you know who is making the decisions. Yeah, and, and it really knows who making who's making the decisions. Yeah, that, that's the other thing is it creates a new layer of problems because if your message was government bad, the state is bad, right? You use the state in the singular sense. Then you can say, okay, here's the enemy. This is what we have to, you know, either limit or abolish or whatever. And uh, but if you have, like, you talked about the elites, how they're they're always in control. It's it's plural. There are many elites. So what is the message? You're going to go hunt down, you know, metaphorically in Minecraft or whatever, hunt down all of these elites, um, and and start checking their power. But if there's that many of them, then it seems like that's more of a, a systemic problem like that is something that's kind of baked into the cake of social hierarchy so that that is a really an idea that needs to be grappled with inside these circles yeah i mean and when you think about these people so you can get many people to go oh look at everybody at bilderberg those are the people who run the world really how do you know how do you know that they're not just a face job how do you know there's not people behind them who are running things why because they have um three commas, you know, on, in, in front, in their bank account. You don't, they don't know that. I mean, they just get, I mean, we've seen over the last year and a half that they can just give people billions of dollars. You know, who knows how people have made their money. I mean, look at, look at Jeff Bezos, all that money that he has, that they say he has is from CIA contracts. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I mean, you know, that, that almost seems like a gift half the time. Um, 
So yeah, being decentralized, you know, if we knew the one person, you know, and then there's always, you know, Jacob Rothschild running around and you know, everybody jumping in his face when he's in public. And I think it's hilarious that he just goes into public. Yeah. Like, he'll just like walk down the street and it's just, and people, and people are like yelling at him and he's like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> how you doing, slave? I mean, who knows he's in charge? I mean, who the fuck knows? I mean, when it comes down to it, what we should be studying now is we should be studying people. We should be looking at what people, how do we talk to people? How do you, okay, so what do people want? And if they want something that's the opposite of what we want, well, how do we build what we want so that we can avoid what they want? It seems like that's what should be done at this point, you know, and as, you know, as Matt has talked about is build wealth. The more personal wealth you have, the more you're, you know, you don't have to worry about these things. You can buy your way out of situations. You can buy a politician. He's been talking. I know that that's like driven libertarians and ANCAPs crazy when he says that and everything. But I, I'm like, yeah, I mean, if I wanted something in my town to be done and I knew the person who could actually get it done, the one person who has like the most sway, you know, the whip or something on the local board on, on the local board. Why wouldn't I buy them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, it makes sense to me. I mean, you yeah. know, but oh, that's that's very unlibertarian. Well, it's very real world. It's very, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's reality. You know, are we allowed to play in reality, or are we only allowed to live in fantasy in our heads? Well, and I think that you know, I, I know that you've taken a lot of flack for supporting you know, some of the nullification efforts that like state governors have done recently, you know, like I saw people calling Ron DeSantis an authoritarian, but it's like, if he's putting things in the policy then making them law in the state that are generally good for people that are more Liberty or we'll say right wing oriented, that's a good thing. And it should be encouraged, you know, cause what's the other you know, they, the libertarians, the purists want to bitch about the other way too. So it's yeah. like, which do you want? Sometimes you got to play with the cards you're dealt. Well, and the great thing, and this is where nobody understands strategy. They just understand theory is when DeSantis does something like that, I want to see what the polls say. The poll, what do the polls in Florida say? How many people polled? What's the percentage of people who agree with him doing this? That gives you a really good gauge of how many people are like maybe liberty leaning or responsibility leaning. You know, so why would you not want to see chaos in the short term? I mean, I don't really honestly believe him banning critical race theory is going to have people stop teaching it or it's really going to stop it or vaccine passports or whatever. But how are people reacting to it? I mean, that's. What do they say about sales? Sales is all about people. It's you're basically selling yourself to somebody and they'll buy your product if you can sell yourself to them properly. The same thing in politics. I mean, you if your message is going to land, you want to know as much background about the people you're talking to as possible. And that goes with sales too. I mean, you're not going to, you know, 
call you're not going to call a 30 year old about life alert you know life alert things around their neck you're going to call somebody who's 65 that's just knowing who your audience is and libertarians don't want to hear it because murray rothbard wrote for a new liberty and if you read that it shows you what ancapistan is and that's where i'm living in my head i got four new liberty up here and you know if it's anything outside of four new liberty well that's statism and you're a statist and i get to call you that on social media and it was just absolutely insane yeah yeah and when he's talking about uh like reading for new liberty that in particular i've been hardcore obsessed with all of these thinkers for the last five years and i've never read it because it seems really dense and boring and it's just not going to happen <laughs> like so the idea that we're going to get the masses to start reading anatomy of the state is just a pipe dream it's it's i'm very quickly like like we said the last year realizing how futile that endeavor is so I mean, I'm with you. I think there almost needs to be a new word created for, for what we're talking about right now, because mm -hmm. it seems to be like, this is not traditional libertarianism in any sense. That was already a fractured, very uh, muddy watered term to begin with. But now like the entire strategy being called into question, it seems like there needs to be a new like name or, or something describing this because the, like we need to have some sort of galvanizing of what we're talking about. And I think that's, that's, what's been interesting lately um, is listening to these podcasts, the one that you're going to have this week to discuss it. Um, and, and right now it's just, it, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, I, I just joined Twitter, started actually using it about a week ago and I joined at a great time. Cause I'm it's sorry. been a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> No, it's been fun. Like Twitter. I understand it. I always just put it off like, yeah, whatever. I got, I got Facebook. I don't need another app. But then uh, you get on there and you see the mudsling and it's like, oh, this is a good time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, I like the term post-libertarianism. It, um, it conjures it. A lot of people like it. it, it it's also going to make people insane because, you know, people think of uh, postmodernism when they you know throw in a post in front of everything. And I like people to go insane and um, you know, watch the way they react. But um, what was the other thing you were talking about? Um, yeah, the, the message, like the kind of galvanizing oh, with, uh, oh, okay. Oh yeah. Here, here was something I wanted to say. Um, oh, believe me, this whole thing with, you know, running a really good libertarian candidate and trying to restart the Ron Paul revolution. I want that to work. I, I want it to work Same. and I will. And if it doesn't work, I will be the first person to say I was wrong. I mean, and, and that I'm happy that it's working. Um, I just don't think it will. I'm not at this time, you know, nothing that I've seen, especially in the last you know, year and a half, lets me believe that it'll work, but I want it to, I think it'd be awesome. Um, but that still does not solve the problem of the fact that the overwhelming majority of people do not want responsibility and do not want liberty. They want slavery. I, they proved it to you. And you know, then you have li there's certain libertarians who are like, well, we need to appeal to the left. It's like, well, I mean, why, <laughs> why? Why? They're insane. They're nuts. Even the ones that aren't like woke, they're neoliberals and they hate us. They hate everything about us. You know, so mm -hmm. you know, appeal to the neoliberal center. Yeah, you should be appealing to the freaking disaffected Trump supporter or anyone like that. Anyone on the right who's just, you know, blackpilled at this point, you know, and, and you might even have to blackpill them a little more in the interim. 
you know, one of my favorite things to tell people, you know, say is, man, if you believe the 2020 election got stolen, what do you think is going to happen in 2024? You think they're going to let, you know, if, if Trump runs again in 2024, you think they're going to let him win? They stole the election in 2020, right? They're not going to do it again in 2024? And just black pill the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like I said at Porkfest, um, then teach them economics. <laughs> and yeah. then give, give, give them economics in one lesson and try and get it. I mean, economic, economics is the answer to all of this. Mm-hmm. Economics is the answer. I mean, as soon as somebody understands economics, as soon as somebody understands, like, what's in economics in one lesson and they like apply it to their life and then they start reading, start getting a little deeper into economics, that person's red pill. They're not going to yeah. be blue. They're, they're not going to be blue pilled. So they're you know, red pill. Yeah. Um, Tyler and I were talking uh, before you hopped onto the chat here before the podcast, I was just listening to uh, Russell brand on Ben Shapiro's podcast. Cause sometimes I'm just a glutton for punishment. And that wow, sounds like wild. a, yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they were talking and Russell Brand, I always thought he's like, oh, he's just kind of blue pilled. He's kind of like the real life Ali G, you know, he has like the exact same accent. And uh, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, no, he was, they were talking and Russell Brand is talking about how he's skeptical of power and I'm, I'm listening to him talk. And then, you know, his only, he said his only difference with people like libertarians and, and conservatives is that, you know, he believes that the the powerful, the elite need, have a responsibility to provide for the, you know, the, the poorer people. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, wow, I, I never liked Russell Brand. But if he just understood, like if he read one good economics book, like you said, uh, you know, Hazlitt, he would be red pilled. I mean, that's it. Like he would be right there with us if he just understood like that thing, like the way he talks about how you know, live and let live. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to bother anybody. He just thinks that we have a responsibility to take care of each other. And, you know, the way to do that, we would try to argue to him is to have, you know, a free market economy. Um, But yeah, no, I I think, I think you're onto something there. Well, let me ask you a question. And I'm, this is going to be the most unlibertarian thing I say. If we agree that the elites are always going to be in charge, is he wrong? That we have a responsibility to take care of the less fortunate? That the elites have a responsibility to take care of the less fortunate. Oh, that that is a good question. Um, I mean, ultimately, no, I don't think directly, anybody has they'd have to direct it would have to be direct. They would have to directly do it. Not use a middleman, not use taxation, you know, but directly be the one responsible for the poor. Because yeah. in and it would probably be them who were part of the reason they were poor, but I'm not like one of those people who believes that there wouldn't be poor people. Even, I mean, not everyone's equal. You're always going to, even Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor. So, yeah, no, I mean, if you look at like, let's try to put this in real world terms. If you look at the rising cost of housing and how that's going to be causing, you know, homelessness, you know, a lack of supply of housing, it's, you know, lower than demand, warrants. So we're going to see like, let's say an increase in homelessness, some guy who would have otherwise afforded a house if they didn't artificially pump up and, and boost the market. Do the people at the fed have a responsibility to that guy that's now sitting out in the rain, you know, overnight. I, I think you could make a compelling argument that yes, they do. I don't know how to uh, administer that. I think that's a whole other conversation, yeah. but that's a, it's a good thought experiment. Yeah. You'd have to forgive a bunch of debt. You'd have to and, you know, I mean, 
they just have to look at the debtor, the people who buy the debt overseas and tell them to go screw themselves, that they're never going to get paid back, things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember back uh, last summer or even before last summer when you know, we're making arguments, I was making the argument that, I mean, if the government put you out of work, the government owes, owes you restitution. Yes, that's very direct. And I mean, there were there were the, the living in Ancapistan in their head libertarians who that blows their mind because oh you're going to destroy you're going to destroy destroy your your children and your grandchildren's future because they're just going to print that money they're going to print it anyway. I mean, it's it, right. what do you are you so what you're trying to do is you're trying to preserve this system. Is that what you're saying? You're trying to preserve this system. Because that's what it sounds like. Unless you think the system can be fixed. And if you think the system can be fixed, I don't think you understand what $30 trillion is. <laughs> because a trillion dollars is $1 million million. Okay? It's a million dollars one time. A million dollars one million times. Push that out to 30. I read an article in 2008... 2009 ish and it explained mathematically how the debt at that time which i think was 15 or 16 trillion it could be lower than that it could have been 12 could never be paid back and yet people think that now that it's going into 30 trillion that they're somehow going to preserve the system i mean just and and if any of these people are like crypto enthusiasts they're out of their freaking minds i mean you you want the system to fail, right? You want to have, you want your, your pet cryptocurrency to be able to rise up and become current, become currency that would, that would be widely adopted. I mean, I, yeah. I don't really understand the whole, I have to do, if I'm, if I deviate one step away from this straight line that is called libertarianism and narco-capitalism, I'm a statist and, the worst thing I could be called in the world is a statist. I don't give up anymore. I, I get it because that was me two years ago. It really was. Yeah, me too. Like, I, yeah. I, 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 the reason I can be so passionate about this is I was the same thing. I was somebody who was like, that eh, culture doesn't matter. Oh, no. No. And now I'm like, everything is culture. It's everything. It's yep. everything. Yeah. You change the culture, then you can have – you have to change the culture in order think about it we're talking about responsibility right how would you get people to be more responsible you would literally have to change the culture of the people yep i mean i don't know yeah i mean and i was there that's why it's so frustrating to me because when I'm being mad at somebody who doesn't see it, I'm being mad at myself two years ago too. You know, I'm, I'm beating yeah. myself up a little bit too, mm -hmm. you know, for not being able to see that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think too, um, like when, when you and Aaron started discussing like reading like state and revolution, when I first heard that, I'm like, Oh fuck. No. Like I, like, no, <laughs> like, you know, I was that like, I'm never, you know, commies are always wrong this and that. And then I was like, okay, fine. I'll give it a go. And I was like, okay, I can kind of see where he's coming from. Like, I, I think they understood some things, you know, maybe the end goal wasn't, we deviated at the end goal, but there, there's, I think you know there's a funny? ton to be learned. 
you know, when Aaron and I were hanging out at Porkfest and everything, we had we had to have the discussion around all the anarchists about how well, they killed the anarchists, but they, they kind of had to because the anarchists mm-hmm. were retarded. Mm-hmm. I mean, the anarchists were terrible. They were like, oh, we're just going to overthrow the society. And then, you know, we'll just we'll, we'll let the government collapse. And then what's going to happen? The same elites that own the government are just going to buy everything back and they're going to raise yep. it back up. And Lenin understood. I mean, Lenin understood that. You, he, he explains it in State and Revolution. And it come, came straight from Engels, where, you know, it, that's why the, the whole collapsitarian thing to me is not is not viable because sure. Okay. There are some collapsitarians who are like, okay, if it collapses, we're going to close off this section of property and everything like that. And now we're going to be whatever, leave land, whatever you want to call it. Right, good luck with that. I mean, Pete, did you, did you listen to Michael Malice on Jordan Peterson's podcast? Yes, I did. Yeah. So going into that, I, I mean, I was waiting for it to drop for a couple months. Like I was just waiting. I was like, just checking my podcast feed every day, just waiting for it. Cause I knew it would be great fun to hear you know, Jordan Peterson talking to Michael Malice and it would be a great time. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, so I have to do Kermit the frog anyways. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, which, okay. Before we wrap up, I got a quick funny story about that. So, um, when I was listening to that, when they started talking about anarchy, um, you have two very brilliant, like high IQ people talking about this. And the whole time I, I didn't find Malice's message particularly compelling, you know, defending, uh, anarchy. And I didn't think Peterson was asking great questions either. He was kind of, they were both being very abstract, which is necessary to a degree when talking about anarchy. But, um, that was another thing where it kind of pushed me away a little bit. I never got to the point of calling myself an anarchist, even though that was, I like, uh, Larry Sharp's description of it. He said, you know, anarcho-capitalism is the North star. Like ideally that's what you're, you're aiming for. Um, but but yeah, listening to that, I didn't think Malice came off great. I mean, what are your thoughts on that podcast? Um, I don't know. It's Peterson was. I think it's hard to. I've been in. I've been interviewed by some people who aren't really good interviewers, and I'm sure I came off like sounded like an idiot because of it. Um, he just. I don't know. It didn't. I, I've heard better defenses of anarchy by malice before. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it had a lot to do with Peterson. I think that I don't think he was ready for that. I just don't think he's knows anything about anarchist thinkers and knows anything about anarchist history. So I think it's hard for, you know, for a Peterson to, to do that. Also, I also think it's very rare that Jordan Peterson comes up, it comes up against somebody whose IQ is as high, you know, is higher or higher than his. So I, I was, I thought my impression of that interview overall was I was very unimpressed by Jordan Peterson in that interview. Yeah. That, he's not, was, he's not the same. Yeah. That was not my, my, I didn't come away with that going, okay, did he defend, did malice defend anarchy? Well, I came away with that going, this Peterson guy, I mean, this wasn't very impressive. And I'm sure he has some, I, I don't listen to his podcast. I don't, I never really understood the appeal, maybe because I am somebody who is um, responsible. And, you know, see, you know, when I read 
the 12, his first book, the 12, well, not his first book, but the 12 steps book. I mean, it was all just logical to me and stuff that I've been doing you know, my whole life. So, yeah, uh, I guess I could, to me. yeah, I, I guess I could understand and it I more in my room. <laughs> yeah. It's an externalization of your mind, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess I could understand it a little bit more because I was 22 when he burst onto the scene. I think it was 2017 maybe. And I was at a point in my life where a lot of what he was talking about me coming into my adulthood, it it made a lot of sense, you know? So it it definitely, I drew some inspiration from it. So in a sense, I'll always have uh, respect for, for Peterson, but I mean, since coming back from his, his rehab and I, I wish him well, but he's not the same guy. I mean, at least not yet. I think he's hopefully on the road to recovery, but he does not seem to have the same like intellectual horsepower that he once had. Um, I wish him well. I mean, he, he seems to have helped a lot of people and everything. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I'm not one of those people who's going to hate Jordan Peterson because he's not a libertarian or an anarchist. I think that people are at different places and they need different, um, different things. It's like music. It's like, I mean, not everybody's going to listen to the same kind of music and people have different tastes and everything. People are at different points. So, yeah, I mean, he's, I, I, he seems to have helped. I know a lot of people that, praise him for helping them get over a really big stumbling point or something in their life that was really bugging them. They couldn't get past. And um, I think that's great and everything, but I mean, he's just not for me. Yeah. So um, we're, we're over time here, but it's been a fun conversation, but uh, Pete, so we have, we've been doing this new segment on the podcast. I don't know if you listened to birds episode from a few episodes ago where we do rapid fire questions. Did you hear about birds segment at all? I started listening to it, but I didn't finish it. Okay. So at the end we asked bird, these rapid fire questions, a lot of like magic number games, like how much would you have to be paid to do X? And uh, one of the questions, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. I thought it was funny. So I asked it, it said, how much would you need to kick your friend Pete Canones in the nuts? And you can't share the money with him or explain why you did it. And he goes, Ooh, 50 grand. (laughs) He's like, so in case you're wondering, grand's a birdo. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so we'll, we'll do those in a sec. I just got a few for you, but, uh, um, circling back to the funny story, talking about the, the Peterson impression. So I sent this video to you a few weeks ago when we made it and I kind of like put it together in a hurry. I did a fake video or, you know, fake podcast between Jordan Peterson, uh, Fauci and Rand Paul. And yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, we got great feedback. I think it's somewhere, it's over a thousand views, but I'm not sure where exactly. But, um, you know, this is actually going to be the first episode we have on YouTube. We finally have that set up and linked and everything. But as of right now, we just have, we have one clip from Scott Horton on our YouTube channel and we have that video. And my, so my parents are very devout Catholics and my mom in particular is like in a, a group with a lot of the women. Most of them are like in their seventies and they, they have like these prayer groups every week. And somehow the topic of podcasts came up. Mike, Mike just called me right before we started and told me this. He goes, so apparently mom was with her church group and they got on the topic of podcasts. And my mom goes to these old ladies. She goes, she's like, Oh, my sons have a podcast. And they go, Oh, what is it called? And she's like, Oh, it's pulse to the wall they YouTube it and they go, Oh, we'll have to check out these couple videos later. <laughs> these 70 year old devout, sweet Catholic ladies are going to listen to that obscene video I put together. <laughs> so 
Yeah, that yeah, no, I'm, I love it. I'm waiting for the feedback. I'm uncomfortable about it, but you just got to enjoy it. But um, okay, Pete, we got a few rapid fire questions here. Okay. All right, the FBI arrests you. You're going to prison. They want to know about your background. What song do they play on repeat to get you to talk? Uh, what songs do they play on repeat to get me to talk? Um... I'm sorry that I'm not being so rapid fire with this. I'm trying to. Oh, it's fine. I'm trying to remember a a song that like really, really, really like became a a worm. (laughs) I mean, or an artist, an artist in general. Oh, I mean, if it no, I mean, like the um, I know this just ages me, but that Macarena song. I remember I, I was in the music industry when that came out and it was just like, people were like so over, head over heels and I'm just like, Oh, what is wrong with people? That, that should have been the you know, first, the first black bill. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. when the culture started to fall apart. <laughs> um, what libertarian podcaster do you think would do best in prison on a related note? I think Clint, I think Clint Russell. I could see that. Yeah, I could see I, that. I think he'd probably be running the place like in two yeah. or three days. Yeah. <laughs> I would ask you who who would do the worst, but then that's just getting into insult territory. But you can uh, answer it if you be, want. It'd be Bird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get him back to kicking me in the nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, who would win in a fight between Anthony Fauci and Ann Coulter? I got to go with Ann Coulter. She, I mean, yeah. first of all, Fauci's 80 and <laughs> Coulter is wiry. And I bet she can, I bet she knows how to really wind up and throw a punch. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is a, a good point. I, we watched the uh, roast of Rob Lowe a few days ago um, from comedy central a few years back and, uh, Ann Coulter was on there and it wasn't the, the roast of Rob Lowe. It turned into the roast of Ann Coulter and I most remember. of it was really hacky, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, she's tall. She's long. She oh, could yeah, just yeah. sting him from the outside if he just taught her a jab. Oh, she'd be dangerous. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so would you rather see your favorite band from the past live in concert or get to MC the roast of John McCain? Oh, I'd rather see um, my favorite band from the past in concert. Yeah. And who would that be? Uh, Metallica with Cliff Burton. Master. Of oh, that's a good answer. Hell yeah. Because I saw that. Oh, did you? What year? 86. Wow. I would, lo- I would love to see that again. Oh, you see those those uh, pictures? Yeah. yeah, you see those pictures of Metallica from their concerts like back in the day? I mean, that, that it goes beyond rock star. It's like they were, <laughs> I don't even know what to call that. It was like every concert looked like Woodstock. But they, um, when I saw them, they opened up for Ozzy and half the crowd left after Metallica. No shit. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Damn. Damn. That's, that's a, that's impressive, but um, yeah, that'll, that'll do it for our rapid fire questions. So Pete, anything you want to plug before the end of the show here? Free man, me on the wall podcast, uh, my sub stack by any memes necessary. And um, I, I mean, I, on my website, free man, on the wall.com. You can donate to me. You can become a supporting listener. Sorry to use Tom's word there. And um, I have Patreon, <laughs> that kind of thing. And if you have Amazon Prime, there is a documentary on anarchism called The Monopoly on Violence that is on Amazon Prime. And uh, it's free with that. It's free if you have Amazon Prime. Yep. I don't know how much it costs if it 
if you don't. So I, I wasn't in charge of that. So. How, how much, or just, this is a quick question we'll end on, but how have your feelings about your anarchy documentary changed over the last year or have they, do you stand by your work? Cause it was very just educational, but how do you feel yeah. about it? You know, a year it, later, it needed to be made and I'm glad we made it. Yeah. Um, that's, I that's how I feel about it. I think we were the right people to make it because we were going to keep it. Um, you know, I mean, we gave the best nods we could to left anarchists and, you know, the, the, the original people and everything. But when it came down to it, it was going to be an anarcho-capitalist uh, documentary and, you know, having the help of the Mises Institute in doing that was, you know, that was, I don't know that anyone in their right mind would try to make a documentary on anarchy and not have it be centered around the Mises Institute. So. Agreed. Right I've on. watched it two times. It's phenomenal. Thank you. It's, I always like to point people. I'm like, hey, you should check this out. If if they are kind of already leaning that way, I'm like, yeah, go check this out. It'll yeah, I just showed it, it at Porkfest. I just we showed it at Porkfest on um, Friday on Thursday night at uh, eight from eight to ten, and then I did in a question and answer afterwards that I don't remember being at. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, and earlier in the day there was a panel on documentary filmmaking. Matt Kibbe was there, and um, Oh my God. I can't remember his name. I'm going to, I'm fucking it up right now. Uh, but yeah, there was uh that was a lot of fun answering those questions. And I wasn't, I wasn't drunk yet, but I might've been a little high. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, um, Pete, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Thanks Pete.